Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast, everybody. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. Uh, week to week, we keep saying, geez, who will we have next week as guests? And we've sort of covered everything last week. What could we possibly talk about next week? Well, uh, week after week, the world in Washington never disappoints. So much to talk about here on the Farcast. Before we get started, though, please remember that we believe on the Farcast that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, keep in mind that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling ebullient or if you're feeling fearful, step back and don't take action on your investments or in your portfolio until you have some real reasons, well-thought reasons, maybe a conversation uh, with a financial professional before you start moving money around and changing the landscape of your financial future. Okay, uh, folks, this week it's been big. As if Brexit and a Fed meeting weren't enough, um, we now have a, a UAW auto workers strike. 48,000 auto workers uh, are striking against General Motors. That headline alone, by the way, would have, uh, would have sent markets reeling in most other market environments, didn't manage to bother this one. And, of course, we've had this drone strike on uh, Saudi Arabia's oil production to the tune of 5.6 to 5.7 million barrels a day has been taken offline uh, just overnight, a drone, st uh, a drone attack. It, it showed a whole bunch of things. It showed the vulnerability of oil production in the, in the Middle East and for Saudi Arabia. And uh, it, it, it also, uh, I think, has... Uh, uh, shown that uh, even though we took 5% of the world's oil supply offline in an overnight uh, drone attack raid, uh, markets didn't react. So it also has shown the uh, amazing resilience of our, uh, of our markets and of the bullish psychology uh, currently going on in U.S. markets. We're going to drill down on this forecast about what all of this means with these higher oil prices, whether this is really a big deal or not. Markets have been telling us that it's not a big deal. Uh, FAR says it is a big deal. It's a very big deal. And FAR says it's going to be with us for a long time. So pay close attention here. Uh, FAR could be wrong. FAR is wrong from time to time. Uh, you can ask FAR's wife if she will assure you that FAR is wrong. Uh, from time to time. She might say even more frequently. But uh, it, this, this does seem like a very big deal to me. We're going to be talking with my friend Dan Mahaffey, our senior political analyst here on the Farcast, who's also an expert in China. We didn't even talk about trade and uh, the negotiations, which, by the way, aren't going anywhere. There's sort of an agreement to still, still talk in the future, and that has relieved markets. Um, but there's a lot more at stake, I think, suddenly in the Middle East, and I, and I want to talk about that. And then uh, we've got Haven Pell coming up. Haven Pell, a Washington insider for many years, but he's also a financial expert and an attorney. Now, we're, gonna, we're very delighted to have Haven join us on the Farcast. So the, uh, over the weekend, a couple of things that caught my, my eye uh, were that the president responded very quickly, as did Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State. Mike Pompeo said that Iran 
was responsible for the staging of these attacks. We heard yesterday that, in fact, the U.S. has evidence that the staging for these attacks occurred in Iran, even though uh, they seem to have been launched from Yemen, uh, and the Houthis have taken responsibility for those uh, launches from Yemen into Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Saudis haven't, for their part, uh, actually said how they're going to respond. The president has first came out with a statement that said the U.S. is locked and loaded. There we go, Mr. President. We're locked and loaded. And then uh, uh, he said, well, we're going to wait and see what the Saudis really want to do and how they want to respond. So I I as I was reading, I read a wonderful line this morning um, some, and I can't remember where it was. I apologize to the author. Uh, I just read and read and read early in the morning. Um, but uh, it, it, given that the U.S. now has enormous uh, oil production capacity um, and that really we can take care of most of the U.S.'s needs, I'm not sure we can get the oil to everywhere we need it to be in the United States, meaning California. It's very tough to get all of our oil over to California. California actually imports uh, a good deal of oil. But uh, we, have, uh, we don't have an oil production problem. Uh, what, we, what we do have to think about, damn it, Harry. One. We don't have an oil production problem here in the United States. There is a global oil uh, production problem as a result of Saudi Arabia. But uh, here, we, we are not going to run out of oil. But the line that I read this morning is that the United States, uh, though they may not run out of oil, may soon run out of credibility. Uh, and I think that that was a very apt comment. Uh, as we continue to threaten uh, things like locked and loaded and then stop and step back and defer to Saudi Arabia and, well, why can't we all just get along and have talks at the U.N. and see if we can't work this out? We have a president who seems determined that he can negotiate with Kim Jong-un in South Korea or any other uh, leader around the world as long as he can get him alone in the room. He thinks he can end up with a good result. Maybe we can. Maybe we can't. But things seem to be getting a bit tighter. And nobody seems to be really paying attention to the rhetoric any more. So this was a very big deal. We're going to get Dan Mahaffey's input. We're going to get Haven Pell's input, particularly on how it's going to apply to investors. But I wrote yesterday that it was a big deal. I also released a video commentary yesterday saying that this was a big deal. When you show the vulnerability of the oil supply, you also show the instability of the Middle East and basically a huge amount of production, 70% of the production of the world's oil supply goes through that Strait of Hormuz. Y you have to watch that region very closely uh, because it depends, a, a lot of it is, is, uh, uh, rests on uh, the rest of the world's ability to grow economically. They need that energy. What I also said was uh, if you hurt the supply, prices go up, and that's going to affect a lot of transportation companies. Certain the airline stocks did not do well yesterday because they pay more for oil, uh, they pay more for fuel, and that hurts uh, their profitability. Today, uh, we saw a uh, headline uh, from FedEx, and FedEx said, uh, as uh, announced today, as I predicted yesterday, FedEx will raise its rates uh, starting January 6th, 4.9% for deliveries using jets and 5.9% for ground transportation. That's just one company. Those costs are going up. 
Guess who's going to pay them, ladies and gents? The consumer. And the consumer has been the strength, the stronghold of the U.S. economy. The consumer has been driving the U.S. economy. That very low unemployment rate, so many people have jobs, uh, and there are more jobs open than there are people who are looking, and we're beginning to see some wage gains. All circles back to one more final far point here, which is the Fed should not be lowering interest rates at this point. There's no reason in it for the Fed to be lowering now. I don't know whether it's politically expedient. Uh, I heard somebody say the Fed needs to get out ahead of what may come. That goes contrary to everything the Fed said, ladies and gentlemen. The Fed has said they would be data dependent. Well, damn it, be data dependent. Uh, we, you don't have a whole lot of room. And by the way, if you lower rates from one and three quarters percent to one and a half percent, which is what they're talking about doing, I mean, that's what, the te what happened on the 10-year Treasury right now. If you lower it, who's going to borrow money at one and a half percent that doesn't borrow money at one and three quarters percent? How much ac economic activity do you think you're actually going to generate with that quarter point cut? Mohammed El Arian has written that until we get a coordination from the fiscal side of various countries along with their central banks, the central banks are uh, already lo losing their efficacy, uh, and that's going to continue. So I agree with Mohammed El Arian very much. Most of the time, ladies and gentlemen, you are well advised to agree with Mohammed El Arian, a very, very smart guy. So uh, now, here we are at the end of Section 1. Thank you so much for being with us here on the Farcast. Uh, we're going to come right back with my friend Dan Mahaffey and figure out what's going on around the world in China and what all of this means in Washington when we come back on the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Uh, season three of the Farcast uh, with lots and lots to talk about. And we're going to talk this morning about how all of what is going on in Iran and Brexit and China and the Fed meeting here uh, is going to affect markets and investors. You know, when I look at markets, we're up 20% year to date. I mean, stocks are not low. Earnings are higher, and uh, it, is a, it is a big deal that the stock market really is still rather fully valued and near all-time highs. Joining me now, my great friend, Dan Mahaffey, Senior Vice President, uh, Director of Policy at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, uh, and, and most probably his most prestigious title anywhere is the uh, Senior Political Analyst for the Farcast. I, I, that probably is on your card. Is it, have you put that yeah, on your card yet? Top, top line there. Top line, you've got to rewrite the, the <laughs> resumes. Uh, he um, has a master's degree in security studies with a concentration in U.S. defense policy from Georgetown University, uh, B.A. in government with minors in history and Mandarin Chinese, also from Georgetown University, uh, Go Hoyas, and uh, studied at East China Normal University in Shanghai, where he conducted advanced language studies and research on U.S., China, and Taiwan trilateral relations. So he is an expert's expert uh, in, in writing about and understanding what's really going on uh, in, in China with a lot of these negotiations, and from the security part of Dan's studies, uh, as we think about what's going on in the Middle East around the world, 
Um, Dan, uh, welcome back to the Farcast. Good to be back, Michael. Uh, so tell us, Dan, uh, with what your tell us your take of what you're seeing, uh, not only in the negotiations with China and Brexit, but let's start on the Middle East and what this uh, situation with the Saudi oil supply and did mm-hmm. Iran actually mastermind this? And what do you think about the U.S.'s response? Well, I think it's interesting where we've seen so far the U.S. intelligence community and at least the, those who are talking to their sources in the media uh, are certainly covering that this is Iranian, that the evidence shows that uh, less likely that this came from Yemen and more likely to have come from Iran or where Iran controls southern Iraq. Uh, combine that with the sophistication of the attack, how well it was targeted. Uh, many people are believing that this was actually Iranian But now the question is, what will the president be doing? What is the response? Uh, So far, you could charitably describe it as tweet loudly and wave the stick. But every time he seemed to come to the brink of conflict with Iran. As opposed to to speak speak softly softly and and carry a big big stick. So you're saying he's uh, talking loudly and waving the stick and that's uh, he's not following. Yes. And and as you mentioned in the intro, it's it's his firm belief that he can sit down in the room with any despot uh, or dictator, be it Putin, Kim Jong-un or the or the Ayatollahs. Uh, and thinks that he can make a deal. That's how he wants to do it, and he thinks the the military leverage can get you there. Uh, but that doesn't. Uh, that it's not a real estate transaction. When you have groups like the Iranian Guards or the militia, the the Revolutionary Guards, the militias, all of those who can launch these attacks or complicate factors uh, in the region, the, the Iranians are spoiling for a fight. They you, want to you, raise you've tensions. You've said for for, for uh, the past couple of years, really, on the forecast, that this president. Uh, was comfortable really only in bilateral agreements, meaning just sort of one-on-one negotiations, and had indeed pulled us out, the United States, out of any multilateral agreement, whether it was the Iran nuclear accord, whether even even NAFTA was a little bit much for the president. And when he negotiated NAFTA, he did it with Mexico and he did it with Canada. He never got everybody in the room together to actually get things going. so we know that that's what he likes to do in these one-on-one sort of situations uh, with the president. But uh, tell why, I mean, it, Iran's already sort of in trouble uh, because the United States has put them in trouble mm-hmm. with the rest of the world. Uh, they have become more aggressive now that they are in economic trouble. Why would Iran, what benefit is served uh, it, it, to the Iranians by uh, going ahead and swatting the hornet's nest the way they have. Well, I think some Iranians, they do want to manage this uh, this provocation ladder in a way to, to demonstrate that the, the U.S. pressure is going to, in a, fa- in a way, backfire on the global economy. I think when the U.S. pulled out of those multilateral deals, the Iranians then felt that they had a much better chance of perhaps getting the Europeans or the Chinese or the Russians, all of those who were involved in putting pressure on Iran in the original deal, uh, to actually put pressure back on the United States. Uh, the United States is, is going it alone on Iran in many ways, uh, but then combine that with the continued collapse of the Iranian economy, and you have those more radical elements itching for a fight. Uh, they want to stick it to the, the Saudis. They feel that they're uh, on the rise with the success of Assad in Syria. Uh, they want Hezbollah to be more confrontational with Israel. They have a vision for their foreign policy uh, and pushing their influence throughout the region. Um, and as we've seen, and as you mentioned with the uh, the geopolitical impact of this on the oil markets, it also then makes you think a lot more 
makes you think about Venezuela, makes you worry about a, a hurricane in the in the Gulf of Mexico. All of these geopolitical events now get a lot more concerning because it's like you mentioned, as, as good as U.S. production is, uh, one, there's, there's still not enough to cover the world's needs as well as the infrastructure to get it there. And then finally, I think, too, that if you if you hearken back to the, the Democratic candidates who said they want to get rid of fracking, uh, we would have definitely been in a war by today if uh, if the U.S. did not have its own domestic oil supply to help uh, balance uh, what we're losing from the Gulf. Costs have this this increase. This will increase costs around the world. Now, I also uh, heard this saw this morning that uh, yesterday about 30% of the capacity was restored, mm -hmm. maybe even 40% by some estimates. Uh, Aramco is being a little more conservative. But uh, so it looks like, you know, we can, we can repair some of the pipes and that maybe the damage wasn't quite as devastating uh, and so that they could make those repairs and get, you know, 30 to 40% of that capacity back online. But it does show the vulnerability of the entire oil production mm -hmm over in the Middle East. I mean, they could just send more rockets tomorrow. They could take out the other 50%. We presume. We don't know what they could do uh, on Correct. the transportation. And uh, now, so does this, uh, we know that that's going to create costs. That's going to create, and when you see costs going up, that means uh, that's going to be a headwind to economic growth. Cheap energy is a tailwind for mm -hmm. economic growth. This is so we're going to have slower economic growth. This could impair profitability growth going forward. And profitability for the S and P 500 companies is rather slow. I mean, we're down in the six percent range, five to six percent range of earnings growth. Um, markets have remained resilient, but but it really does sort of lower. Uh, the outlook, and the longer this goes on, and if there's a disruption in the Middle East, that further hinders growth. What are the odds in your mind that we actually see military conflict in the Middle East? I think the odds are pretty high that we see some kind of a, a military strike and further tit for tat. I think markets are far too uh, naive to think that the, the unthinkable can be priced out when it comes to a major disruption or war uh, in the region. Uh, but I, I do think that there is still enough uh, of a uh, deterrent capability that you could keep it limited to airstrikes or uh, limited retaliatory action that, uh, you know, each side would shy away from measures uh, similar to a full-blown war. Uh, but I would not rule out military action, particularly since the uh, president took enough criticism last time this happened with the, with the tanker strikes. Um, I also think the president needs to think about his political future as well as he looks at this. One, uh, if we do have this increase in energy costs, uh, what are we going to see in terms of what that wipes out for the consumer? Tariffs have already uh, pinched the wallet. You're going to have higher energy prices. Uh, if the president's asking people, did, they, did the tax cuts or the Trump economy make them better off and their balance sheet is worth, worse off going into next year, these international crises are undoing the benefits of his economic policies. Will there be U.S. involvement in a military strike? There will be. There will be. Yes. There's no way that you could have the Saudis carry this out independently. Hasn't they the need, U.S. They need sold us. them a whole lot of weapons? Don't yes, they but they need, I mean, they need us to fight. They need our help to fight the rebels in Yemen. Taking on a, a nation like Iran would certainly require U.S. assistance. We've we've sold. Uh, 
fine kit to all those countries in the region, uh, but it's only as good as the, the people operating it. And we've seen the, the tradition in those countries is that the training, uh, the doctrine, the personnel never matches the technology we give them. Uh, okay, so we've given them, we've sold them great weapons. Uh, I hope we've made some money off of those, but they still can't really use them effectively without us. So you think, you're saying there will definitely be U.S. involvement, and you are saying that there will be a military response uh, Correct. This, at, the, at this uh, point, directed at the Iranians. Directed at the Iranians. Directed at the Iranians. Should there be U.S. involvement in this military response to the Iranians, and why? So the U.S. involvement is there as a message to the region, and as much as we want to move away from the role that we are still responsible for securing the energy supplies coming out of the Persian Gulf. That is our our hegemonic role in the region. And therefore, we. Why? Why? Why do we have to secure the energy? I mean, isn't it more in China's interest to keep the Persian Gulf open? I mean, we've got. I, our look, own I would love. I would love to hand it off to to China, but again, it's uh, we got. It's India needs that oil. Japan needs that oil. So why don't they protect the damn strait and get us out of it? I mean, I'm, in most situations, I am the least protectionist guy on earth. But right now, I'm thinking, why? Why? Why is my dog in this fight? I look. I would agree with that too. I think it's a sentiment we need to explore further. But you, as we've discussed, the as long as we are part of a global energy market, we're going to have responsibilities until we either find ways to get our partners, like J the J Japanese, the Germans. Look, you, some of this you're saying we have to go back in history and get the Germans and the Japanese to not yeah. be, you know, not carry that World War II memory and start to carry some of their own collective security responsibilities. That would be a part of it. The Japanese are moving that way. We're getting Australians in the coalition. Get the Europeans on board. Build that coalition, which is something, again, yeah. that this well, president can't okay, seem to do. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Mahaffey for president, please. Mahaffey for president. Uh, this is a guy who absolutely gets it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time. Dan, we're out of time. I can't believe it here. Next week section. we'll do Brexit. Maybe if we if it's uh, if if it hasn't been solved by then, or if maybe if Boris Johnson is still prime minister, which who knows over in England they seem to be going through them like you, you know, uh, uh, just a, a daily change I think of t-shirts. The, the only thing I can add about Brexit, I'll say quickly. Best tweet I saw from it was someone said, "The year is thirty nineteen. The British potentiate arrives in Brussels to deliver this year's Brexit delay request." <laughs> No one knows the origin of this arcane tradition, but the tourists love it. The, the tourists <laughs> love it. I like that. Uh, this is going to have an effect on markets. I think markets have underreacted. I expected markets to be down 500 or 1,000 points yesterday. Futures are indeed. They, they went down about a, Dow went down 140 points yesterday. Dow futures are down more this morning. I think this is going to dawn on markets slowly. I don't, can't figure out why. It, it, markets that had been reacting to every tweet out of the president now have something that's actually real, and they're not reacting. I, I, I'm, I'm scratching my head, but I do that a lot. When we come back, Haven Pell from the Pundificator, gotta love that name, a financial expert and an attorney, a longtime Washingtonian, is gonna weigh in on a lot of what's going on and what it means to investors when we come back on The Farcast. Thank you for listening to The Farcast. I'm Harry Jennings, producer for the show. We also bring you a daily podcast, The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Each morning the U.S. markets are open, we give you a summary of markets, headlines, commodities, and futures before the opening bell. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms, The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. 
And now, back to Michael and his guests. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks again for joining us again this week. Season three of the Farcast. So much to talk about. Terrific segment with Dan Mahaffey. Dan Mahaffey, who says a 100% chance that there will be a military response uh, in, in, from Saudi Arabia directed at Iran and a 100% chance that the U.S. will be involved. Uh, as we get to uh, my next guest, uh, there's also a 100% chance that the Federal Reserve is meeting in Washington today, and a lot of folks think that there's pretty close to a 100% chance that they're going to lower interest rates. We know that there's a 100% chance that Boris Johnson is going to be discussing Brexit, that Bob Lighthizer is going to be trying to do something today uh, in advancing the Chinese uh, trade talks, and we know that uh, there will be talks, almost 100% today, somewhere between the United Auto Workers Union who are keeping those 48,000 GM workers on strike today and General Motors and see if any progress gets, any, gets made anywhere. How do we think about all of these things as investors? Which ones are important? Which ones are just noise? Are they all important? If they are, how do we prioritize them? My next guest is Haven Pell, great friend for many years. Uh, Haven uh, has been a, uh, in Washington for 40 years. He's in his sixth career now uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm not sure that he can really stick with something, though, but over 40 <laughs> years, uh, you know, you have to give the guy some credit. He's had a very successful career. He is now a blogger and commentator. His new website is called The Pundificator, and you uh, can see that at thepundificator.com. Pundits know things, and the word has up, uh, uplifting Sanskrit origins. Pontificators tell you things whether they know them or not. The combination began as a self-deprecating spoof, but it's become a thing now. Haven had separate careers in the advice business as a lawyer, investment banker, foundation family office head, and investment advisor. Uh, was an investment advisor for the competition here in Washington uh, with Farm Miller in Washington uh, for a number of years, competed uh, with us uh, respect, uh, respectably uh, and successfully, I'm sorry to say. Uh, after graduating from Harvard uh, back during the 60s in the Vietnam era, Haven served as an officer in the Navy, and we welcome you, Haven Pell, to the Farcast. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. We are so very glad you're here. So, Haven, we have, uh, as China trade, Brexit, Fed meeting, UAW strike, and Iranian attacks on uh, Saudi oil reserves uh, uh, production and the oil supply and a less stable Middle East. Which of the, how do you prioritize these things? Which, which have your attention? I'm increasingly a contrarian, and I think that the things that we read about are often the things that are the least important. The things that we read about are very often related to governments and the actions that they are taking. But the things that really matter are the things that governments aren't doing. Uh, Bill Gates uh, has his annual report that he puts out at the time of the UN General Assembly. Uh, and he is pointing out, in some respects, how well things are going in, uh, throughout the world. 
he makes an observation that the most important thing that impacts a person's life is where they were born. The second most is their gender, with males uh, still predominating uh, over females. Uh, and yet, notwithstanding what we read and hear in the increasingly uh, aggressive media uh, in terms of trying to get our attention, he observes that the world is going pretty well. Uh, the thing that I think about is that the parts that are going well are representative of a sort of a competition between government and non-government. And the things that I look at and say, wow, that's great, are things that people are doing for themselves. And it is less what a government is doing for me than what people are doing for themselves. Good things and good stories certainly abound. And yes, we don't focus on them. I used to own a crisis communications uh, PR company. And uh, uh, the fellow that ran that used to point out regularly, you'll never see the headline, plane lands safely at <laughs> Dulles. Uh, because nobody cares about those normal good things that right. do happen all, all day long. Did Bill Gates explain why he thought the world was going well? I think it's a very interesting point. Well, I think he's part of, I, I didn't, I saw a summary, I didn't see the entire thing, so maybe he did, and maybe he deserves a great deal more credit than, than the summary gave him. Uh, I suppose he is observing that things are going well because they are. Um, is there something about the last 20 years as an investor that you didn't like? Sure. Um, the dot-com crash in 2000 was extremely unpleasant. The it was not fun. The mortgage meltdown in uh, 2008 was extremely unpleasant. But would you trade what the last 20 years have looked like? Uh, do people measure how, how much more they can do today than they could once have done. Those things sort of trickle into your lives rather than happening in a sudden way, and so they don't get much coverage. Do you think markets are, are, the, uh, are, the, are a measure, uh, that the positive market returns are a measure of sort of the positive global environment of the last 20 years? Are they the barometer? I, I think a lot about correlation and causation. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm headed off in the wrong direction. You use the word barometer, which is fine. That's just a measuring stick. Yes. And uh, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I, it seems to me, if I were looking at the single biggest factor that I suspect over the last 20 years um, has, has made a difference, you, you have to have central bank action very high on that list. Yeah. It, it's a big deal. Central bank action is a big deal uh, uh, for the r reason that the world is sort of going as well as it's going. It, 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 will that be true going forward, do you think? Has the central bank, have they lost their efficacy? I mean, have, they, have their teeth been sort of dulled over the years of chawing, uh, chowing and, and gnawing? Have they used their tools? Um, they sure seem to. I mean, they've even created a few extras that they've managed to use. I didn't know they had. Something that would be interesting to, to think about is with pretty much every other activity getting better at what they do, shouldn't central banks also get better at what they do? Should have gotten better, and likely they did. 
Have they gotten better since 2008? Well, you would think that they would be using their computers just as much as everybody else is, and they would be studying the impact of things that they did, and they, could, they would be tweaking it too. So that, to me at least, doesn't seem like a constant that central banks are only as good as they were 10 years ago or 90 years ago. I suspect they are better at it, and I'm sure that they're trying to be. When did the world begin to expect the central banks to be able to solve all problems economic? I mean, uh, I, I, I didn't believe that uh, when uh, Volcker was chairman, but Greenspan seems to me tried to convince all of us in the world that, uh, that the Fed was magical, that he, uh, not only in appearance, uh, but in practice, uh, had this Yoda-esque uh, presence that could somehow solve uh, all problems, great and small. And has that put the Fed, if you agree with it, and has that put the Fed in a position of perhaps over-promising, and do they risk under-delivering, and what would the consequences be now if the Federal Reserve can't solve all of these world economic problems? What if we think about that just slightly differently? Okay. What if the Fed is no more Yoda-like than it was, but the competition for doing things has gotten worse? Okay. Okay? So let's imagine what is the competition. The competition should be the ordinary government day-to-day -day and whatever steps they are taking, but are they doing as good a job as they once did? That is not my view. It is and not. It is not. I think governments generally, if you look around, have become so oriented towards popularity contests and so oriented away from leadership that they have become less effective. I find them in, I, I, I've been toying with an analogy uh, of a football game in which you imagine that your leader or government is either a coach or a cheerleader. When they are a coach, they are trying to accomplish something. When they are a cheerleader, they have their back to the field and they're trying to rally the crowd. And I think that the ratio of coach to cheerleader has changed dramatically. And I think you see it everywhere. Uh, I think Boris Johnson is to some degree being a cheerleader and uh, not a coach. Um, uh, you could argue that, certainly could argue that President Trump is being a cheerleader often more than he is being a coach. Could you make the same argument about Xi Jinping uh, as he deals with Hong Kong, that his concern is not so much what ought to be in front of him as it is what his followers are thinking about his prospects. How will this, because believe it or not, Haven, we're down to our last two minutes here for this segment, um, but, uh, and it's been terrific. Thank you so much. This is terrific. But as we think about this uh, shift towards popularity and away from leadership, not only in the U.S., uh, as in your view, but also around the world, how does that affect markets? And how do investors look at government, look at leadership, look at the Federal Reserve, and, and say, what's this going to mean to my portfolio? And with everything going on, let's have a couple of words from you with a great deal of experience. Uh, what should investors be thinking about at the, uh, looking at their portfolios coming into year-end uh, with all of this noise? Uh, Haven, uh, as an investor yourself, 
how do you how do you think about the rest of the year? How worried are you? Uh, do you make any changes? Just we've got to do this very quickly because I am out of time. But okay. but, but tell. Uh, I'm I'm a you're the uh, experienced guy. People I am listen. such an asset allocation guy, and the way I look at it, I look at how much can I f afford to lose, uh -huh. and my. Uh, I just set my risk profile to something that I think is going to be okay in bad times. And, and define a bad time. How much? Is, how much down is a bad time? Twenty percent. Thirty percent. Two thousand and eight was a bad time. That was a bad time. <laughs> that was a bad time. That uh, was a fifty percent drop. I would prefer to keep losses to maybe fifteen percent. Mm -hmm. um, and it, to me, that translates into a pretty moderate, pretty straightforward 60-40 kind of thing. Okay. Um, and probably that would be even less than a 15% loss, but maybe. Yeah, okay. All right, manage, manage the risk, but basically stay invested for the long term. Yes. And try and ignore a lot of this noise. You know, I have a great friend of mine, John Whitmore, who uh, took Bessemer Trust from the Phipps family private office to the publicly available company that it is today. And John told me, he said, you know, uh, I've heard predictions uh, across my career for the end of the world any number of times, and so far they've all fallen a bit short. <laughs> uh, and if indeed the current predictions for the end of the world fall short, uh, then probably we're going to want to stay invested. And if they don't, and this is the uh, big one, then it won't matter either. So I completely agree. Uh, yeah. uh, everybody, if, if we're talking end of the world, everybody is into relative performance. Exactly, <laughs> relative performance. Haven Pell from the pundificator.com. Thank you so much for being with us on the Farcast. Thank you, Michael. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't thank you enough. We're going to be back next week. A terrific guests. We're going to still be sorting all of this out. Should anything major happen between now and uh, next Tuesday or Wednesday show. I have to be in um, New York next week. I'll be uh, the guest host uh, the halftime report for CNBC. I'll be on for the whole hour next Tuesday afternoon from noon until 1 o'clock up in uh, New York for CNBC. They are wonderful to have me. It's a great treat to go up there and see so many friends. Uh, we might uh, uh, switch the forecast to Wednesday if the train schedule doesn't work as expected. But uh, I will be back. We can come back sooner if there are any major developments. Uh, certainly if there are military attacks over in the Middle East, we will be back with you. So thank you again so much. Please share us on social media. Please be back with us again this week. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you uh, for tuning in. In Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to this week's Farcast. We hope you enjoy the show as much as we enjoy making it for you. Please subscribe and share with a friend. The Farcast is available for free on Spotify and all major podcast platforms. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings. We love hearing from our listeners. Let us know what you liked, what questions you have, and what topics you'd like to hear in coming weeks. You can reach us at farcast at farmiller.com. You can also subscribe to our new YouTube channel at Farm Miller in Washington and receive Michael's periodic video essays. We would like to remind you that if you think you've heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security here on the Farcast, you haven't. The Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and it should not be considered legal or financial advice. 
Before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to us at invest at farmmiller.com. Each week, we bring you experts and insiders to give you a look at the forces that shape our world, the economy, and the investing landscape. Go beyond the headlines every week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. <laughs>